This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Suchin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. And by Green Chef, a new food delivery service that makes cooking easy with consciously sourced healthy recipes and organic ingredients. Get four free meals with your first order when you go to greenchef.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaffin. This is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Calamities and Sue edition. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2016. On today's show, The Night of is a, it must be said, thrilling new HBO limited series that stars Riz Ahmed as a young, college-age, second-generation Pakistani-American who finds himself in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. And then the Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami died last week. He's widely acknowledged as a modern master, one of the you know really true greats of world cinema. He's also, um, I had to confess, a blind spot of mine. We're assuming maybe also something of a blind spot for some of our listeners. We thought we'd rectify this in a little way by all watching one of his movies. Dana picked the 1990 film close-up. Spoiler, it's a masterpiece. Finally, we discuss the gathering flap over Hollywood actresses and plastic surgery. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia, what dumb slew of uh, of uh, flimsy lies did you tell to get out of jury duty this week? I just asked for a postponement, so I'm going to have to go do it again <laughs> in six months. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for covering for me last week. Um, we may do without you. It took a team, but we did it. Um, did it take a team? Last week was a team, yeah, Dana? Yeah, yeah, it was guest, guest central. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I'm joined by Dana Stevens, who's the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Julia, before we dig in, surely we have business, yeah? Yeah, several pieces of business. First of all, do not forget to buy tickets for our live show at The Mount, Edith Wharton's home in Lenox, Massachusetts. That will be on the evening of Thursday, August 4th, and we'd be delighted to see you there. You can buy those at Slate.com slash live. Then... Wait, 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 wait. Should I make a special offer here, which is that if you jokers come to this thing, I will meet you at 2 p.m. that day on Thursday and take you all on a hike, you guys included. The deal is you have to come too. I will take you on the best hike in the area that I live in, which is 10 minutes from the mount, if that, and then we'll all head over to the show together. I like it. That sounds good. <laughs> how long is it, How long and arduous is this hike? <laughs> That's under four hours. Aren't we going to be like cramming and like reading uh, Edith Wharton? We, the I, sh- we can't leave it to the shows. And like, I'm revising my outfit for the show now. This is getting crazy. <laughs> even better. There's no signal on the hike. But listen, here's Steve's the thing. It's just actually- trying to, <laughs> to sabotage the show. He's going to lure gonna us take- into a cave. <laughs> And they were never heard from again. 
<laughs> I, I happen to be familiar intimately with the amount of prep we actually do for these live shows. So I think a four hour hike is in order. But here's the thing it's not four, you can do it easily in under two and a half. And there's, <laughs> oh, like, God. There's, I swear to God, there's the most amazing treat at the apex of the hike. I'm just telling you, I will do this, but we have to sell out the Mount Show first. Could it be like at 9 a.m. the next morning or like oh, 10 a.m. that morning? Deals. You're you're making me nervous. Um, we can negotiate this. All right. Plausible hikes. Hikes will plausibly be affixed to this event if enough of you buy tickets. That's as far as I'm willing to go. Um, nothing like doing a four-hour hike in two and a half hours to prepare you for a live event. Um Okay, second piece of business, Slate Plus. One of the benefits of Slate Plus this year is that you get to join a virtual book club with Laura Miller designed to help stanch any holes in your literary education. And so all year long, she's partnered up with a couple of different Slate folks to read classics that they've never read before. So she read um, Thackeray with Willa Remus, and she read Willa Cather with Willa Paskin. And I'm up. And we are reading Barchester Towers by Trollope. Uh, so if you're a Slate Plus member, you can listen to our initial show where we talked about what to read. And then we will produce an episode where we discuss the book and what we thought of it later on this summer. Members of Slate Plus also get to listen to our bonus segments on this show. This week, we're going to talk about the horrible news last week in Baton Rouge, Minnesota, and Dallas, the way that it was viewed and covered online and a provocative article that I suspect we may agree and disagree with about um, why we watch the news and, and how we watch traumatic news. So we'll discuss that in our Slate Plus segment. You can join at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. The Night Of tells the story of Nazir Khan, a young man arrested for a grisly murder. We are almost sure that he didn't commit, though along the way we do see piece by piece, bit by bit, his every careless decision. His nightmare night begins when he borrows his dad's taxi cab out in Jackson Heights, Queens, without permission to get to a party that he wants to attend in Manhattan. He compounds this by picking up and partying with a mysterious and beautiful young woman. The whole thing adds up to a wrong man horror story to end all wrong man horror stories. This show is terrific. I cannot wait to talk about it. But first, let's um, let's listen to a clip. Yo, guys, I'm off duty. What? Um, I'm supposed to be off duty. You are. Your light isn't on. Yeah, I know. It's, uh... See, I, I don't know where the light is because it's not my cab. Are you going to make me get out? Well, where do you want to go? What do you mean? Well, you got in my cab, so, like, where do you want me to take you? The beach. The beach? Yeah, the beach. Um, we're in Manhattan, so, uh, I could do a river. A river would be fine. Well, Julia, th- I, I think it's fair to say that this, um... Don't this do been... it! Don't let her get in the cab! <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is, I mean, if you have any issues with anxiety, you, you really need to pop an extra clonopin before you it put was this thing on. I mean, the first <laughs> 50 minutes of this are the most... Yeah, anxious making. Yeah, yeah, hair raising. I have, I have a question about that actually, because okay, I think we will all agree the first episode of this show, the night of, is all about the setup, right? And it seems to be moving very, very slowly at first. You seem to be seeing more details than you need to see of this this young man's night out on the town. But of course, all those details end up figuring in later for his alibi and you know evidence against him and other things that come out at in in at trial about that night. But mm. didn't did you guys find it hard to maintain sympathy for this character over those fifty? minutes? minutes in which he makes one terrible decision after another. The only thing no. that saves it for me is that it's, he's played by a wonderful actor, Riz Ahmed, but I think there's such such an over-determination of his stupidity in the first episode. I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't think so, Julia. I, I, I'd be curious to hear what you think. I didn't think so at all. There's a wonderful philosophical question, which is that if you add 
one grain of sand to another grain of sand and then keep adding a single grain of sand when does it add up to a heap and i think it just i kept thinking that as i watched this that each one of these little decisions that he's made none of them in and of itself indicates that a heap of trouble you know the size of the one that he ends up in is going to accumulate and yet it does i thought it was incredibly effective but what do you think yeah, I didn't have the like, don't be stupid. Why are you doing that thing quite as much as I sometimes do in stories that have uh, protagonists who get themselves into scrapes? Because I think the show does a really, really good job of sketching pretty quickly what kind of guy he is. You can see how responsible he usually is and how much he yearns for a bigger life. And, you know, there's a moment early on where you get a sense of what kind of person he is and what sort of. Uh, respect he has for the authority of the police when he's lost and a cop pulls by. He's like a young man in a cab that's not his, and he asks them for directions. You know, he's he's mm. not he's not um, trying to avoid the law enforcement system, right? As one of the cops says at one point when he's taken in, the wonderful role played by Ben Shankman. The cop says. Who's this Bambi who's over here looking at me for the last two hours? And it, it seems to me like a big part of the setup of the first episode is what a Bambi his character actually mm-hmm. is. And obviously he's going to be led into all, you know, a web of all kinds of, um, you know, corruption and so forth. <laughs> I mean, I've only seen one episode beyond the first, but I can tell that things are going to get really dark in this show. Yeah, yeah. And not to be heteronormative about it, but I mean, I have to say watching this, like the allure of the woman that he picks up who inadvertently creates this, you know, hell for him this kind of criminal you know hell for him is um that's done i think very well because that's not that that is not not a cliche the you know cab driver in this instance the airsats cab driver picking up the beautiful young woman you know who within her person carries an amazing amount of sex and mystery and i think the reason why it's carried off so beautifully is the episode and i think many of the subsequent ones are written or co-written by richard price he of he's the novelist of clocker's fame among any many other like really truly wonderful genre books but also um he of the wire i mean richard richard price wrote quite a lot of the wire and i kept thinking dana that this was the first tv i'd seen since the wire went off the air where every bit of it was filled with um, keen, keen, keen observation, powers of observation and wit. I really thought it was to that quality uh, in the writing, certainly. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I would say it is the only thing that's as good as The Wire since The Wire, but I do think that basically the first 40-odd minutes of the show, and I think some of the the reviews may have made this analogy, but it's sort of like a horror movie. Like, you're just Mm -hmm. like, oh, God, don't, no, don't go in there. Don't open that door. Don't go in the basement. I mean, there's no actual basement, but the whole thing is like a, it it feels like that. Like, don't, 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 don't. This is going to go so bad for you. And then it turns into a bleak real politic cop show, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of a very sophisticated cop show with kind of the like jazzy astuteness of Richard Price and the kind of bureaucratic real politic, um, the drama of the of the boringness of the injustice of the American criminal justice system, which which mm-hmm. feels familiar from The Wire. And as soon as you get over that hump, you're like, ah, I'm back in horrifying but comfortable <laughs> television mm-hmm. territory, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this ride. Mm-hmm. And But for the record, I wouldn't say that it's the only thing as good as The Wire since The Wire went off the air. It's just the only thing written in that particular style where, like, every detail, it's just the kind of detailed apprehension of bureaucratic, you know, like dull gray but deeply deeply sinister bureaucratic reality that really defined i think each season of the wire it's really in this dana um it's also inspired by something else as well which is the addictive true crime of the serial and uh and making a murderer seem to have gone into conceiving and shaping the show too Oh, you mean you think that the serial was an actual influence on this show? Because I, I was... oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not the only one to say it. I mean, I you know I'm not original in saying it. A lot of people have pointed out that you know a wrong young man, especially a wrong young man of the potentially wrong color and religion, um, you know, story is really inspired by serial. And the, and we should say that John Turturro stars as his defense attorney, so the role of the heroic defense attorney um, comes maybe partially, some somewhat inspired by making a murder. Maybe not. I don't know. Well, I guess also like Adnan Syed, he doesn't have a real alibi, right? He doesn't deny that he was there and that he had all these connections to the woman and that that there's all this physical circumstantial evidence against him. He just simply says, I know I didn't do it. Then there's the the disturbing fact that at the time of the crime, he was not conscious. He had passed out. So I suppose that there could even be some doubt as to whether he himself knows whether he did it or not. Mm -hmm. 
And I do think that the actor at the center of it, Riz Ahmed, is like a find. And Dana, you're familiar with his work, right? Oh, yeah. I was so excited. that. Well, that was basically when you guys had me with this topic, you know, when we were sort of floating, oh, this new HBO show. All I had to hear was Riz Ah. (laughs) You didn't have to get to the H of Ahmed before I was completely in. This actor, I feel like I've had my eye on him for so long and he still looks so young. He looks like a baby now. And if anything, he looks more like a baby in this series than in the first thing I remember seeing him in, which was Four Lions in 2010. Remember Uh, that terrorist comedy? We all talked about it on the show, I think. I think we did. I didn't know he was in that. He was one of the inept terrorists in that in that sort of controversial comedy about uh, terrorism. And he was in another movie about terrorism called The Reluctant Fundamentalist that I reviewed that was pretty mediocre in every way, except that it had this stellar presence at the center. I think he's much better known in, in Britain than here. He's he's British Pakistani, and he I think was a rapper and kind of a successful DJ before this, and has sort of been like a, a handsome guy about town in the in the British papers for some time. But I think he's kind of finally going to become a a, a household name. And then most recently he was in Nightcrawler, which I don't think we did talk about on this show, but I did review it. It was that Jake Gyllenhaal vehicle that was about the unethical journalist. I thought it was a p- piece of complete trash and a really absurd kind of view of journalism in the 21st century. But <laughs> there was a wonderful character and a minor character who was kind of a dumb stoner kid played by Riz Ahmed, and he was one of the saving graces of the movie. So I think this guy's been waiting to get this kind of role handed to him for a while. I will say the one thing that nagged me about this show is the opening credits sequence. I strongly dislike, I have yet to look up and do the baseline reporting that would make this a smarter observation, but the opening credits sequence of this show, of last year's True Detective, and of um, Animal Kingdom, the show that you guys talked about last week, which I watched even though I wasn't able to come in and discuss it with you, all have the style of like really dark, super close-up, uh, like little fragmentary shots of like people's bodies and, mm-hmm. you know, but then like urban lightscapes and then like back to the close up and then like a map and then like a snake of car headlights and slow-mo and blurring and some kind of like dark grungy song. I'm like mm. fucking sick of it. Stop opening your shows that way. Get a new oh, no. team. I hate I hate those opening credit sequences. But what do you expect this theme to be, Julia? Like the night of jazz hands. I mean, it's a dark show. <laughs> I did keep hoping that the night of that was my joke as I was watching the meeting. I was like, maybe it's just the night of the he like meets a nice girl from the other side of the tracks and they like have a fun date in his cab. It's a cab date show. <sighs> I knew it wasn't that. I'm not saying it can't be dark. I'm saying find a new way to be dark. I think mm. all three of those credit sequences to me seem derivative of and much worse than the True Blood opening credit sequence, which was the first that I can remember to do that kind of like dark, heavily like blacked out, like cross-cutting close-ups of weird things. But the song in that was like so twangy and jaunty that it it all crystallized into something that felt very fresh and cool. And these like maundering, (laughs) just like stop it with the maundering credit sequences. Don't like them. Get something different. That's my one critique. This is kind of, tragic because the surprise at the top of the hike I want to take everyone on is the wandering credits. <laughs> God damn it, Steve. Forget it. I'm never going into the woods with you. Uh, all right. Well, that's that then. All right. Well, it won't soothe your nerves, but it's masterful. It's called The Night Of. It's on HBO. Check it out. Uh, let us know what you think of it at uh, facebook.com slash culture fest. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The Iranian film director Abbas Kiarostami died uh, within the last couple of weeks. He was uh, the critically acclaimed director of something like, I think, 40 films, shorts and documentaries and features, most famously the Coker Trilogy and Taste of Cherry, which was awarded the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film, at the Cannes film Festival. Um, he also is very well known for the 1990 film, uh, widely regarded as a masterpiece, Close Up, and Dana suggested that we watch it as a way of talking about his work. Let me read a little bit from Dana's really beautiful um, memorial to Kiarostami that was up on Slate last week. 
She says, let's start with the can rolling down the hill in close-up, a 1990 masterpiece by Iranian director Abbas Kiarostami. It would be crass to argue on the very day after this irreplaceable artist's disappearance about which of his movies was the greatest. Different fans will have differing allegiances. None of them will be wrong, but it would be hard not to argue that close-up, a film based on real events and reenacted in part by those who lived through them, is among the most original and important movies made near the turn of the 21st century. Dana, um, the obvious place to start is with you. I agree with your assessment completely. Um, close-up is a remarkable movie. I mean, it's 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 so unusual. I wasn't even sure exactly what I had seen when I was done with it. I really wanted to take 24 hours to think about it before I went into Wikipedia to determine exactly what I saw. For those who haven't seen the movie, describe why it might be somewhat disorienting on, I mean, utterly entertaining. I don't want to put anyone off this movie. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. But why is it, um, describe a little bit about its unusual mixture of uh, documentary and, and fictional elements. All right, I will. And it may be that I also have not completely prized apart, even after many viewings, the different layers of fiction and documentary and reenactment of this movie. But essentially, the inspiration for this movie was a real event uh, in which a young man in Tehran impersonated, passed himself off as the director of Mohsen Magmalbaf, who in Iran, like Kiristami, is extremely well-known and kind of household name director. So this young man is riding on a bus next to an older woman, and she notices that he's reading a script, a screenplay for this movie, The Cyclist, that was written and directed by Mohsen Makmalbaf. And in this sort of combination of feeling flattered and uh, and wanting to impress her, somehow he ends up giving her this screenplay and passing himself off as the director. And from there, it sort of balloons into this this sort of case of fraud, right? That was a real thing that actually happened in Tehran. Kiristami heard that it was happening, started reading about it and following it in the papers and started to make the documentary while it was happening. But that said, it's difficult to tell when you're watching close up how much of what's happening is a reenactment of something that previously happened, how much is actually a scripted sort of documentary about the making of the the movie about this man itself. Um, Kiarostami's voice is heard off screen, and uh, and he's you know, there's a sense that he's guiding and shaping events in some way. He asks permission to film the trial, and here I'm not quite sure whether, because the quality of the film changes a bit there, whether that is an actual filmed trial or a reenactment of a film trial. And I know this is sounding all tangled and crazy, but when mm-hmm. you're watching the movie, it feels more like it feels more like a, a rose that has many layers of petals, and mm-hmm, you're kind of yes. getting to the center, and they all sort of nestle together in a very satisfying way. I, this is going to be a hard movie to talk about without spoiling anything. So I think we're going to be talking about formal issues a lot because if you start getting into the subject matter, the movie becomes less fun to see. Right. Now it should should be said that that, that there's no huge spoiler here. You know from the beginning that he's not this film director. Um, uh, right. Well, in fact, and that's that's a huge part of the the way the story is told. Right. It's chopped mm-hmm. up to a whole different bunch of different perspectives, different points of view. There are actions that start at the beginning of the movie that we don't see the completion of until yes. near the end of the movie. And so it's very it's very intricately edited in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Julia, uh, had you seen this movie before? And what, what do you make of it? I had not seen this movie before, and I'm very glad that I have seen it. Although I will say the drama is... The, the drama is entirely psychological. Like the, the, the movie, that shot of the can rolling uh, with the exception of like one or two other shots is the only kinetic thing that happens in the whole movie. <laughs> like a tray is moved and at one point there are a couple car rides. But like other than that, it is just people sitting still and talking in living rooms or in courtrooms and occasionally in a prison. Um, and so the drama unfolds in this very quiet manner with people describing what they know about each other and and how they came to slipperily can you adverb that slipperily <laughs> interpret and 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 impersonate each other's lives but as you see those people sitting still and talking you're cutting across like various class distinctions in Tehran that are probably less readable to us in America 26 years later but are still certainly perceptible and then also because you have the title card that says playing themselves, you have this total mindfuck of a like, wait, what? This, yes, that's this... a very important thing that I forgot to say up front. Thank you, Julia. Yes, mm-hmm. Hossein Sabzian, who's the, the man at the center of the movie, the guy who passes himself off as Mokmal Baf and is arrested and goes to trial and whose story Kiristami follows, plays himself. So that in itself yes. is quite.
fighting. Well, they all play themselves, and, and, the, fam- and the family that he defrauded play themselves, and as well. the journalist who followed and the, the story I'm, plays I mean, himself. It's just, it's but are there any? Is there anybody who's cast in a role? Is there anybody in the reenactment who refused? I would. I would imagine there's a making of documentary about this, which I haven't seen actually. It's on the Blu-ray disc as an extra, and I would suspect that there has to be some combination, some people who, for whatever reason, legal or personal, didn't want to go back and revisit this moment and play themselves. I'm not sure about that. I, I'm not sure about his mom. I mean, there's a couple other characters in the movie, but I'm certain, but I've definitely read that the journalist, the defrauded family, or were they defrauded? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. were they, in fact, given the performance of their lives? Uh, and and Sabzian himself uh, were all played by those real people. So you, you're watching this thing that seems actually dramatic, but also like quiet and slightly inert in terms of like the stillness of the frames. I mean, often the camera just kind of sits and watches people talk and do quiet things. But you've seen this title card and you're like, wait, what are these people doing? How did this happen? Like this really happened? And then these people are reenacting it. And then how is this poor guy who got caught up in this impersonate? Now they're all being asked to impersonate themselves Mm -hmm. on screen, all for the love of cinema. I mean, it's just it's it's a movie that is a lot of its activity takes place in your own mind, wondering what the fuck is going on, I mm-hmm. would say. And mm-hmm. and satisfyingly so, although I would not recommend watching it. I would recommend, like, I think it's actually playing at Film Forum now, maybe in honor of Kiarostami's death. And I would recommend, like, going to see it with a group of people in a theater or, like, I would not recommend watching it alone in the morning on a, like, TV in a room that's too bright where you can barely make out the subtitles as I did. I would say I had a suboptimal viewing experience. Well, this is the thing I was going to say about Kiarostami in general, to step back for a second from close-up itself. There's a, there's a wonderful quote that came up a lot in the in the week after his his death about taking naps in films and that he had been accused of having slow movies by some some critic and that he said he enjoyed movies that allowed you to take a little nap. And then he thought that it was that a movie should be a, a, a place for sort of restful reflection or contemplation. And mm-hmm. that's a lot yeah. of what I think feel like his movies are about. That rolling can that, you know, you, you read the, the detail of from my obituary, Steve, is, is a moment that happens for no reason in close-up. It's it's essentially almost a, a little tag at the beginning. It's in the first ten mm-hmm. minutes of the movie that tells you pay attention because you don't know what's going to be important. Right, right. But it also it also makes you wonder is that is that something that just happened or is it you know that th- there happened to be a can there and he happened to be filming or is he imbuing it with an enormous amount of symbolism and in fact the movie is about that ambivalence and that ambiguity, the inability to really know which one Kiristami is doing at any given moment. I really don't want to undersell this movie and I don't want to make it sound like a postmodern puzzle piece because it's a great, I think truly a great film and it's not boring and it's not up its own yin yang about issues of who knows what, when. Um, I it's think also it's also short. Of, it moves, it moves along quite swiftly for a movie that has so little action. Yeah. If you're going to nap, make it a quick one. Um, the movie <laughs> I think is a work of genius for showing both the humanism of a work of art and the power of the humanism of a work of art within the context of the film, by the way. I mean, uh, the film is itself a deeply humane work of art, but it's about how works of art are construed as being deeply humane, but how they they also take place within an economy of prestige. And these two things don't always complement one another, and they've come to an enormous conflict in this poor, suffering man who sees a kind of universal humanity in the works of a film director who he loves. His own life is a nightmare, semi-nightmare of poverty and unemployment and obligations that he can't fulfill. And he sees this enormously powerful expression of 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 uh, the human condition in these films and he so identifies it with it he creates this kind of pathetic fallacy and he makes himself in his own head not in a psychotic way but but really in a sympathetic way into the author of those films which if you think about it when you really connect with a work of art there is a part of you that feels as though you're co-authoring it and something vulnerable in this guy breaks down and he kind of he believes he believes but not really believes that that he has kind of made these movies and wants to inhabit that person and that's humane but then there's a second level which he confesses to he's asked by the judge and again this isn't a spoiler but he's asked by the judge why did you persist in this illusion if you didn't want to if it wasn't criminal right i mean because that's the question at the heart of the trial is were you doing this in order to take their money and eventually steal from them um and he says, no, they ga- I, did it be- I persisted in it because they gave me their attention and respect. And so this, this movie takes place at this 
you know, uh, excruciating crossroads of this man's social invisibility, which he feels is alleviated by this work of art. But what does that give him if he then doesn't pretend to have made it? Because he returns to his own life as someone who's socially invisible. And to really alleviate it, what he needs is the prestige of the great artist. And I think that's where the really profound sadness and wisdom of the movie derives from because that theme is persisted in up until the very last shot of the movie it, it's really one of the it's really just one of the best movies i've ever seen it's amazing I, I i can't i can't encourage people enough to see it if they haven't oh steve i knew you would swoon for this one i also just want to mention in this i can't even describe in any way what the ending is like so as not to spoil it but kiristami is great at endings he's always great at endings he does not have a credit sequence or the moments before a credit sequence that aren't incredible and often the way in which his endings are incredible have to do with framing and with sort of moving back and making you see the moviness of the movie sort of existing uh, existing around the story and uh, and the, the ending of this movie does that really really beautifully the whole movie has this austerity as julia said it's not mm. very action oriented there's no non-diegetic music until the very end and then it feels mm. so earned right the moment yes, that this lyricism kicks in yes, feels exactly. feels so right yeah the movie is called close up dana before we exit the segment what other movies by kiristami do you recommend you know, I only chose this one for us to see. I mean, this is I made my, maybe my favorite of all of his movies, but I, I mainly chose it for us to see because it was the most accessible and convenient. You could find it on more streaming sites than most places. But if you can dig them up, um, you mentioned some at the beginning that are great. There's this there's this, this set of three movies that are referred to as the Cocaire trilogy after the village that they take place in and around. But they're not really related to each other, and Kiristami didn't intend them as a trilogy, and all three of them are great. The first is called Where is the Friend's Home? It's about a, a child. A child is the protagonist as was often the case in this first wave of Iranian cinema that, you know, you could tell stories about children that you couldn't necessarily tell about adults and get in some allegories that you couldn't in a, in a, in a story about older people. But Where is the Friend's Home is a fantastic movie. The second one, which is one of the hardest to find for some reason, is maybe my favorite. It's called Life and Nothing More. Or, or sometimes the title is rendered as Life and Nothing But. That's a beautiful, beautiful movie. And then the last one, which I think is a little more accessible because it was after Kiarostami started to be known abroad, is called Through the Olive Trees. So all three of those I would recommend also as a as a way to kick off your Kiristami Fest. All right, fantastic. Um, please, please, please watch these movies and report back to us. Um, and uh, let's discuss at facebook.com slash culturefest or via email, whatever you want to do. But incredible film, uh, highly recommended, close up by Abbas Kiristami. Okay, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do you what do you have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is also brought to you by Umqua Bank. How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions that someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umqua Bank, host Suchin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents penny-pinching, and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small businesses. And that's just the first three episodes. These conversations wind up being about way more than dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcast. So download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money. All right. Well, about a couple of weeks ago, the Variety critic Owen Gleiberman wrote a column titled, Renee Zellweger, if she no longer looks like herself, has she become a different actress? The piece was supposed to be, I think was supposed to be a sensitive meditation on plastic surgery and the state of Hollywood actresses' faces relative to uh, shifting standards of beauty. Um, Let me quote from it a little bit. Gleiberman wrote, I was caught off guard the other day when I saw the trailer for Bridget Jones' Baby. The movie star Renee Zellweger already had her did she or didn't she moment back in 2014. I'd followed the round the world scrutinizing of her image and went along with it. But this was different. Watching the trailer, I didn't stare at the actress and think she doesn't look like Renee Zellweger. I thought she doesn't look like Bridget Jones. Oddly, that made it matter more. Celebrities like everyone else have the right to look however they want, but the characters they play become part of us. I suddenly felt like something had been taken away. Um, he goes on to describe her her old look with pillowy cheeks and quizzically pursed lips. Um, uh, Julia, uh, Rose McGowan, the actress, among other people, were deeply, deeply offended by this column, um, responded with uh, unreserved uh, contempt and vituperation. How did you feel about it? 
poor Owen Gleiberman. I, I, I feel like I have sympathy for him. And I don't think every. Th- I, I think he's muddling through a set of complicated feelings in this piece. And there are parts of it that are more deftly expressed and with which I'm more sympathetic and parts of it that seem a little bit naive and blinkered. Um, but I think that uh, Rose McGowan's response is like absurd and not particularly apropos. Well, we should say she basically fired off a kind of op-ed, mm-hmm. right, an open letter to Variety sure. saying that essentially she had dropped out of the industry because of the kind of sexism and what she saw as this, you know, brutal bullying white male behavior in Owen's piece. And I guess I guess I'm kind of with Julia on this one. This reminds me there was some other time. Oh, when we were talking about misandry with Dan Coyce, remember, Julia, where you and I, the two women in the room, were on the other side of the sexism question? Yeah. I, I can't work up that much outrage about this this reflection on plastic surgery, which it seems, I don't know. I mean, could a female critic have written that? Would a female critic have written that? It does seem like the question of an actor's face, which is their instrument, right? A close-up of a movie is essentially sort of like the actor playing their instrument. For someone to take that instrument and alter it dramatically does change the way that you relate to that that famous face. And I think that's what he's trying to interrogate somewhat clumsily and, um, as you say, maybe a little bit naively. But I don't think with malice, and I didn't come away feeling disgusted by the existence of yeah, that Yeah, it just seemed like a, a bad sign of the state of discourse that he was like so roundly excoriated for this piece, which is clumsy. And and I I will tr- attempt to lay out the few points that he makes and where I think some of the logic holes are, but I stipulate that I do so without decrying his uh, like worth as a human being or ability to speak about anything in the film industry ever. So there's one part in which he says it's confusing to talk about actors' faces um, because you can never quite tell if they've had plastic surgery or not, even if you can totally tell. Like you, it's as a journalist or as a critic, you're not supposed to talk about things that you don't definitively know, and we never definitively know, even though your eyes can tell you a lot about what has happened to someone's face, and that can create confusing situations as a viewer relating to the work of an actor. So that's point one. That seems fine. Then there's point two, which is that somehow whatever has happened to Renee Zellweger's face is a particular betrayal because of the kind of beauty that she represented on screen, the kind of characters that she's most powerfully played and what that represents. And this is the part that I think is the weakest and wrongest of his points. Uh, but basically he argues that like the she's not beautiful like a normal beautiful actress. She's approachably beautiful. She looked a little bit weird with her squint and her pursed mouth and her her broad puffy cheeks and that she wasn't beautiful in the way that Julia Roberts is beautiful. But like, that's just crazy. I mean, Je- Jezebel had a very smart piece pointing out that the kind of approachable beauty, the flawed beauty, the the beauty with the birthmark, the beauty with the various qualities that make them seem approachable and like you might know them and they might sit next to you on a bus or get into the back of your taxi or whatever. Um, it's like almost all great actresses have had some quality like that. And even Julia Roberts, to name the one that he holds up now, is this like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Julia Roberts is not Grace Kelly, right? She's like everyone mm-hmm. talked about her like gangly cultishness and her like freakishly huge mouth and her long sloping nose. Like she's she's like a yes. specific looking person. She's not a like a fembot. And so anyway, that whole notion that somehow Renee Zellweger represented a particular archetype of ordinary beauty and thus it is like and and played a couple roles both in Jerry Maguire and in Bridget Jones of like ordinary womanhood on screen represented. And so it was a particular betrayal of the audience of her oeuvre to do weird things to her face just seemed like wrong. And that was the thing that offended me most about the piece is just like, oh, I think you're like totally wrong about how female beauty operates on screen and you seem sort of naive about it. And that that makes you maybe like not the person to to be trying to guide us through a nuanced and sophisticated set of mm-hmm. questions here. On the other hand, right. I, I really resist the, the Rose McGowan notion. I mean, I don't deny I'm sure it sucks to be an actress in Hollywood in many ways. I'm sure that you deal with sexism uh, rampant and subtle all the time. Um, but I do think, I mean, we, I think we've talked about this where also I took the unfeminist position about actresses wearing pretty clothes on red carpets. Like, 
I don't know. I feel like that's part of the publicity apparatus for the movie. I feel like, A, your instrument sort of is your face and body, and critics should be allowed to talk a little bit about your face and body, not in a leering, what a hottie way, but in a, like, how does your, how do your features help you do the work that you do? Like, that's an interesting thing to read about when you read about film criticism. And um, I just don't, I don't know. I think, like, Alan Gleiberman was wrong, but I don't think he was, like, out of line. And in his way, in his clumsy way, I think he was trying to make what he would frame as a feminist argument in the sense that he was saying, like, women should stop having yes. feeling like they have to do things to their faces to right. be beautiful. I thought that was where the rubber started to hit the road a little bit, um, interestingly, which is he's kind of making a semi-empirical claim, which is that the standards for Hollywood beauty have actually changed since the first Bridget Jones and since Renee Zellweger broke in Jerry Maguire, and that there has been a standardization um, in the direction of superficial perfection that places an enormous pressure on um, actresses who've got at least a somewhat non-traditional beauty um, to um, amend it, you know, via plastic surgery. I just wonder if that's true. I mean, it just seems to me at the end of the day, have audience quote unquote tastes in this regard really shifted? Like people have always wanted both from men and women on the screen a kind of ordinary ideal, like a, or a streak of ordinariness or relatability to use the current term of bullshit art, but, you know, um, to go with uh, also a degree of unattainable perfection. And it's that combination, that sort of totally lightning in a bottle combination that makes someone into a, you know, more than just like a TV star or a soap opera star or a model or whatever into a movie star. Has that really changed? I don't know about that. But there, I will say that as a, White male in danger of misspeaking every time he opens his mouth, uh, rightfully so, by the way, in my estimation. But anyway, like it is a little hard to talk about, um, you know, uh, you know, you're talking you're talking about an artist, as you guys pointed out, whose instrument is their own physical person. Uh, they're very often they've gone through a rigorous Darwinian selection process that really only allows extraordinary looking and being people to emerge at the top. Um, you know, how is a male critic supposed to write about female beauty on screen without sounding like a hideous uh, lecher, you know, and card carrying member of the patriarch? I don't think it's that easy. And on top of which, to begin with, and it's gotten that much harder, but then on top of which, I think plastic surgery is an interesting one. I mean, you know, I think we're all caught in the vice, right? Like we don't want average people to be on screen. We live among and are ourselves average people. There is an element of of just comely, you know, comeliness as escapism that goes into making movies that we want. At the same time, we don't want to like reductively objectify human beings who are trying to you know, treat their acting as, a, as, as an art in some way. And it's like, I think just, I just think it's a really tough needle to thread. And I guess we all agree on this, that the Rose McGowan response, which is really, really like unbridled contemptuous vitriol is, is, is pretty at the end of the day is kind of counterproductive. On the other hand, she speaks from experience. You know, she's been objectified in this way and was revolted by it and more power to her. I mean, so she's, I she's I essentially know. she and, and some other people who wrote and posted on this is drawing this very hard line of just like, I don't want any male critic assessing the appearance of any female performer on screen. And that seems like that that boxes the critic up in a, in a strange way. I just think that's a crazy position. But I also feel for Rose McGowan, who frankly, I think is being exploited here. She like wrote a hot-headed screed, which is newsworthy because she's a like, you know, famous actress who has like already tangled publicly with the like Hollywood industrial complex. Um, you know, like the, the she did not actually write the counterpoint op-ed to... Lieberman. She, yeah, she just vented. She just vented. And it's like not a piece you would actually publish if she weren't the person that she were. Anyway, I feel like she's being used, frankly, for like clicks in this instance rather than actually being helped to make an interesting and persuasive argument. But back to the point you observed, Steve, I mean, I do think that the, the another irony that I think it was the Jezebel piece about this pointed out is that Gleiberman seems to have watched the trailer for the forthcoming Bridget Jones movie and be lamenting that Zellweger's face does not look the same as it did, you know, 20 odd years ago or whenever the first movie came out, which cuts a couple ways, right? So if if her face has changed from plastic surgery, it's not the same in a way that doesn't feel natural. But of course, part of why actresses get plastic surgery is because they're pressured to constantly look the same mm -hmm. as they did 20 years ago in a way that's completely artificial. And that's sort of how you end up there. So 
having the like, whatever you want to say about an actress's face as her instrument, having the presence of mind to acknowledge that a person's face might change over 20 years is actually mm-hmm. part of the problem rather right. than part of the like sympathetic and slightly paternalistic condescending solution mm-hmm. that I think rankled people. And I also think another point in that same piece that I loved is like Bridget Jones is totally the kind of woman that would have had possibly <laughs> bad work, plastic yeah. surgery. <laughs> so like uh, this doesn't seem like maybe the right instance, also certainly before the movie even comes out. I mean, you know, to get to the place where I comment on Renee Zellweger's face, because let's just get to that part of the conversation. Like, I actually think her face looks like mostly pretty normal in the trailer, especially compared to the weird photo that was much scrutinized Mm. a couple years ago. And again, weird photo. I mean, like, there's photos of me where I look like a freakish alien. Like, it's hard to know from that past flap what the evolution of her instrument has been. But like, I don't actually find the way she looks in the trailer to be particularly distracting Mm. at all. Well, Dana, this raises an interesting question, right? Which is where do we draw our sort of puritanical line? Is it between no plastic surgery and plastic surgery, or is it between good plastic surgery and bad plastic surgery? Dana, I know you've had a lot of work done. What? <laughs> yeah, what I'm actually inter- 73. You guys did not know that about me. <laughs> um, what was your internal dialogue before you got, you know, um, do you have a, any kind of fixed principled position on plastic surgery is it case by case i think i do less less and less i would say i mean i was thinking as you get older and older that's how (laughs) i feel about it (laughs) in in, in in part i mean i guess i feel less judgy about it maybe because the culture is less judgy about it maybe because you know i'm closer to needing it but but i see that there's a feminist side to both sides of the argument right i mean i feel like the old school kind of first wave feminist or second wave or whatever gloria steinem era feminist position would probably be plastic surgery bad because not natural right it works against the natural effect of gravity on your face and you know just let yourself grow old you'll look nice that way right that would be one feminist position but of course the position that rose mcgowan and plenty of other responders to this are taking that i think also has its own legitimacy is stop judging me for what I do to my face, especially if you're part of the society that puts such such emphasis on appearance and on particularly female appearance and female youth, you know, that that, that standard can't coexist with judging someone for trying to look better according to those very standards, that the whole thing is so psycho, in other words, that there's you can't find the right feminist stance within it, really. Right. Mm. I'm curious to hear you talk about how you describe the physicality of actors and what you think about there and how that's evolved. Yeah, I don't know. I was wondering when we were doing the prep for this segment whether if I went back with a fine-tooth comb, which I have no desire to do, and look at all my reviews, have I talked about an actress's appearance and possible surgery in that way or or an actor's? I can't remember, but I, I wouldn't put it past me. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold myself above that and say it's somehow beneath me to talk about an actor's appearance, especially if you're doing a sort of like this Owen Gleiberman piece, which is not a review, but is sort of a, a reflection on on a larger trend in, in movies. I mean, I think we also haven't talked at all about the fact that there are plenty of men who have screwed up their faces, too, with Mickey Rourke being the most salient example. But, you know, there's obviously lots of surgery being done to keep other famous faces looking the way mm-hmm. they always did. Right. But there was no code of silence surrounding Mickey Rourke, as I recall, right? People spoke quite openly about how kind of peculiar he looked relative to his younger self. I guess there are a lot of borderline cases. I mean, people, I don't think, remember quite how unusual Sylvester Stallone's face was back in the mid, early to mid-70s when he debuted Rocky. You know, how Rocky became, went from being this kind of, you know, beefcake with a crooked smile to this paragon of male perfection, which took, you know, a lot of weightlifting at a bare minimum and uh, I think some scalpel work. That probably wasn't discussed. Yeah, I mean, men get off the hook. I mean, this is where Ray's McGowan's rage, if if inarticulate, is potent and I'm sure justified in some respects is like we just talk so much more about women's bodies and faces than we do about men's. It's still true. The fact that the culture seems to be moving more in the direction of men being just as neurotic and uh, obsessed and judged as women doesn't seem great, uh, even if it seems more equitable. But I'm dying to know. Would either of you guys ever get plastic surgery? And are are you plumped with fillers already? <laughs> Dana does have an amazing complexion. It's really quite astonishing. Uh, hmm. Would I ever do? Eh, 
Surgery? No, no. I don't think I could do that. It's, it's, it feels too much. If nothing else, it just feels like a waste of money. You know, it feels like a huge investment in your own vanity and that somehow God would get you back for it <laughs> soon <laughs> yeah. afterward. Um, but I do feel way less judgmental about it. And also, it might depend on, you know, if, if you were fixing some small specific thing that was bothering you, if it wasn't sort of like, I want to look younger and I want my whole face to look like it did 20 years ago, but sort of, I don't know, I guess... My my mother had her ears sewn down because they stuck out. You know, that's a form of plastic surgery I might do if my ears bothered me. I mean, something that was sort of like fixing the fringes, I guess I could see. But something that's an actual attempt to just turn back time and re-youthen your whole face feels feels like Faustian bargain. That's mm-hmm. what I would say. How about you, Steve? Uh, I would pay any amount of money to look like Samuel Beckett. As I grew older, so I think yeah. There's somebody I, I, who looked better the older he got, right? He got more. It's and true. More I would pay. I would pay good money to get cragged like that guy. <laughs> you got to find, uh, find Beckett's Crag Man in Paris. Yeah, yeah I need Beckett's Crag Man. Get me Beckett's Crag Man on the phone. And also, I need. I need. I need like a thick, lusty quiff of gray hair. You know, that just is popping right up off of your skull until the day you fucking die. Um, I don't know. I don't know what kind of a procedure you have to have the the coal black burning, you know, tempestuous eyes of a genius. But um, I think it's just I, those contacts they wear in vampire movies, Steve. <laughs> so I guess the answer is, is yes. It's interesting. I would love a world where plastic surgery was all geared towards the specific kind of aging you want. Like, what if you want to be elegant crow's feet aging, but actually your bag's below the eyes aging, and you're like, fuck, (laughs) can you just, like, take the skin folds of my bags and turn them into elegant crow's feet? (laughs) Um, Yeah. All right. Well, the um, essay was by Owen Gleiberman. It's titled, Renee Zellweger, If She No Longer Looks Like Herself, Has She Become a Different Actress? That has kind of a wonderful, if a tree falls metaphysics to it i guess but um anyway check out the essay um and let us know what you think about this and uh, and the subject of plastic surgery facebook.com slash culture fest all right now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor julia what do you what do you have there the site culture gab fest is also brought to you by green chef green chefs usda certified organic meal kits make it easy to cook healthy and feel great about where your food comes from they deliver everything you need to cook amazing dinners right to your door their meals come pre-chopped and pre-measured so you can get dinner on the table in just 30 minutes plus they offer a nice amount of choice in what kind of meal you like to eat so you can go paleo or vegetarian or gluten-free or now even vegan is a new option there's no shopping no planning and no commitment you can switch between menus skip weeks or cancel whenever you want right now green chef has a special offer for our listeners enjoy four free meals when you sign up at greenchef.com slash culture that's greenchef.com slash culture all right now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse dana what do you have well, I know, Steve, that you get a lot of flack from listeners for your local endorsements whenever you talk about this tiny little ice cream place in Hudson or this quaint little pizza joint in Vermont, and people get upset that only a few of them can access that place. But this week, when I tell the backstory, I think you'll see why I'm going to give a local endorsement, but not for my own location, for a location in Los Angeles, where I spent last week. I went to, to L.A. on a research trip, which was great in many ways, um, and it was wonderful to see the stuff that I got to see in the the Academy archives. But it was strange in the sense that it was a weird week to be alone in a high-rise hotel room while the world was falling apart last week, while basically America felt like it was burning around us. And uh, and at a certain moment, I just realized, I need food and I need company. I have to get out of here. So I got out of my high-rise hotel and started walking down Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, which at night is a, a dead zone, basically. It's just all closed businesses. And there was this little place called Afghani Kebab House that I had passed a few days before thinking, oh, I should check that place out one night, completely not fitting in with the territory at all, a little brown hut of a restaurant called Afghani Kebab House. And so I went to check it out. And as it turned out, it was this restaurant's opening night. It was their grand opening, but they were about to close because I had spent so long anxiously refreshing the news and staring at screens that I had missed the hours the restaurant was open. So they seemed to be cleaning up. You know, I went and went in and chatted with the, the owner and said, oh, could you maybe just make me something to go? Can I just get some food to go? And uh, and he said, oh, no, come sit down. We're not completely closed. And they basically reopened the restaurant for me, let me sit there alone for an hour having an absolutely delicious meal, which, by the way, I never saw a menu. I just said, make me a plate of delicious Afghan food. And uh, and he did. 
and we chatted a little bit. We didn't even talk about the events of the night, but there was just this sense of, of, of communion and company and that there was someone taking care of me, almost like going to someone's house and having them cook you a meal. And, uh, and so after this delicious Afghani spread, I went in and said, what do I owe you? And the man would not let me pay for the meal. He said, oh. the cash register's closed. It's on us. You can help us out by telling yeah. other people that our restaurant is here and that you, you liked it. And so this is the, the largest audience that I can find to say <laughs> <laughs> that if only for that story and how soulful and wonderful that man was and how much better I felt about humanity after leaving his restaurant, but also because he has delicious, reasonably priced food, you should go to Afghani Kebab House at 8560 Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, California. It's You would not expect this restaurant to be in this place. It's basically a little dive, but it is absolutely wonderful and it's worth the trip. Uh, that's an amazing heartwarming story. But if you didn't see a menu, how do you know it's reasonably priced, Dana? <laughs> didn't see a menu. He didn't charge you. It could be like 12 gold doubloons per kebab. Julia, have you heard of a little thing called Yelp? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And as it happens, I think the very first review that this has on Yelp since I was there on opening night is me telling this story. So if you want to go hear a, a very moved me coming straight back from Afghani Kebab House and typing up the story story of my dinner. You can go on Yelp and read the reviews. I did not know that Dana had a Yelp profile. That's like the biggest revelation <laughs> of this whole story. I think, I think I created one for this purpose. I don't know if I've ever reviewed a restaurant You got to go review some other stuff. People don't trust reviews from people who've only ever reviewed one place. I want to know about your local dry cleaner, your local Botox purveyor. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. How do you get free shit elsewhere? I want to know that. Um, all right. That's, no, it's a wonderful story. That is really sweet. Um, Julia, what do you got? Um, I have a recommendation that's also local and sparked by a fortuitous coincidence, which is that I saw the Broadway version of The Crucible last week, and Bill Camp is in it. He plays the Reverend Hale, uh, so the same character actor who played Detective Box on The Night Of has a very different and also quite well-done role in this performance. And I would, it's a twofold recommendation. If you are going to be in New York and are interested in the theater, I definitely think this production is worth checking out. It stars Ben Wisha, much beloved of this program, possibly edging out Jesse Eisenberg as the premier actor in the hearts of Dana and Julia. I don't know, but Riz Ahmed is pulling up pretty fast from yeah, the rear there. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long Wishaw can hold position. But anyway, he's great and he's very good in this. And Saoirse Ronan is in it and Tavi Givenson. It's a great cast. Um, and the production is is interesting and, and striking. So if you're inclined, I certainly think it's worth checking out. But also, and this is going to be one of the patented Julia Turner endorsements where Julia Turner discovers a classic that everyone else has already been aware of for a long time. But weirdly, I grew up in New England and never read The Crucible. I mean, I grew up within, you know, however many miles of Salem, but just was never taught The Crucible in school and never saw production of it and never sought it out to read it later. Um, uh, it's, just, it's just a really good play. Arthur Miller knew how to write a play. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Revelations that's by awesome. Julia. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay, well, I'm kind of on your same, you know, uh, rev revelatory wavelength with mine. But um, I'll begin by saying, Dana, I think you agree with me that uh, any excuse to mention the name Clive James on this program is to be welcomed. Um, the other day, Clive James, who it should be said has been diagnosed with serious illness for years now, and, and he himself has become quite funny about reports of his own death being greatly exaggerated. And has also become more prolific since, since his diagnosis, right? Yes, exactly. He's kind of everywhere and enjoying himself in this wonderful kind of last act kind of way. I mean, it's it's really a, an amazing celebration of um, of life. He's a wonderful writer. He has been for decades. He went to Glastonbury, <laughs> which is just awesome. The thought of octogenarian um, Clive James. Glastonbury's like British Coachella or something. Exactly. Brit yeah. Coachella. I mean, the thought of him, the kind of, you know, penetrating, you know, wit of his generation, you know, in his 80s, I believe in his 80s at this thing is just too great. But um, he saw the band Churches and um, he talks about the lead singer Lauren Mayberry uh, uh, as follows. He says, all around the vast stage, Lauren hopped and floated in a skein of her delicious melodies, a tangle of white muslin being agitated in an invisible washing machine. Could any angel be more wildly delicate? To put it another way, could any angel be more wildly delicate while wearing work boots? Dana, this is so doubly, triply pleasurable because not only do you get to listen to 
Clive James, overhear Clive James falling madly in love with this little waif on the stage. It brought me back to the night that Clive James fell madly in love with you when you were uh, <laughs> uh, out to dinner with him. <laughs> because you two, are, you two are a tangle of white muslin being <laughs> Visible washing machine, at least when you're out to dinner and had three glasses of wine <laughs> with Clive James. But, um, and then th- thirdly, it put me to mind of churches, which is spelled with a V in order to make it more SEO friendly, which I just think is so fucking millennial. <laughs> but, uh, I know everybody knows this band. It is like endorsing the Crucible or the TV show Cheers. But I went back and listened to them, um, after reading this. I had kind of listened to them, liked them, and then not thought that much of it and moved on. But, um, I gave it another chance and I just, I love that album. The bones of what you believe and i really love the track that went big we sync is just a great song and it has the additional virtue of being um a song that i can put on crank up and my 13 year old daughter doesn't um reduce me to a tiny little nub with a spiteful look um she kind of liked it so um anyway i like that song um and people should check it out thank you so much dana thanks steve thanks julia thanks steve You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anna Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, the Culture Gap Fest. We are part of the Panoply Network. So if you like us, check out the entire roster. It's at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julie Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Hold up. 